0: Telecast, the TV industry news review.
1: What are the key lessons true royalty TV learned from launching their own esports service? What's happening at this year's Banff World Media Festival? And how do you deal with return to the office anxiety? Find out only on this week's Telecast. This week, I'm chatting with True Royalty TV's Gregor Angus, BAMP World Media Festival's Jen Kuzmik, and Fast Track to Fearless's Tracy Forsyth. So the last few days have been frenetic when it comes to media merger news and rumours. And those who were predicting big M&A moves this year as the streaming wars start to heat up, it looks like they've been proven right. And here to discuss this and a host of other topics, including what's on the agenda for TV markets and conferences in the second half of the year, are Gregor Angus, founder and CEO of True Royalty TV, and Jen Kuzmik, Executive Director of Banff World Media Festival. Welcome to Telecast, guys.
2: Thanks so much.
3: Good to be here.
1: Gregor, coming to you first, as the owner of an esport yourself, I'm keen to get your take on the Warner Media and Discovery Union but before we go into that um tell us about your businesses ABM and True Royalty TV
3: Sure a- ABM is is really the holding company for True Royalty there was a thought at at the outset that we might have multiple streaming channels but uh the royals uh has has quite occupied um both the uh the amount of content and activity as well as the voracious audience we seem to have. So uh, we're pretty focused on true royalty. Um, it was really uh, the coming together of of the other two co-founders discussing how they could take uh, Nick Bullen, uh, one of the co-founders, content he'd been producing for years as an independent production company in the UK, direct to the consumer, go digital, sort of uh, open up the second half of his career. And of course, that all made sense, but they weren't sure how to do it. I'd been working, uh, I'd been working in the Nordics and Germany, helping an Fod launch uh, there, and I'd learned about all the things you don't do, which was handy. So the mistakes were made elsewhere, and, uh, and I was introduced to Nick, and, and the rest is, is sort of history. We we went gently, gently with um, without ba- building fancy tech, without producing a whole bunch of content and overpaying for licensing, just to really see if there was an audience dipping a toe in and as we've gone along the way at each point, uh, you know, the validation has been, has been very, very strong. So it's gone great. we we launched uh, in the summer of 2018 pilot direct ser- C service. And since then we've um, uh, obviously that sort of confirmed our hypothesis and we've added distribution with the likes of Comcast, Cox, Sling, Uh, the Roku channel, and now uh, Amazon channels.
1: Right. Okay. And are you able to tell us how many subscribers you currently have?
3: I can't tell you how many subscribers we currently have. I can tell you we add anywhere between 2,000 and 6,000 a month, uh, but that's about to accelerate given the reach of Amazon and sort of the frictionless conversion it represents. But um, I can tell you that approximately half of our base is D2C and half is uh, via partners. That's likely to become, the proportions will probably shift to more to partner subs uh, with the addition of the Amazon distribution.
1: I'm sure a lot of TV execs out there have, have thought about great ideas for SVOD services serving niche audiences. And passionate audiences which is obviously the key but you're one of the only businesses that have actually gone and launched one and gone and, and done that now when it comes to serving that niche audience of royal fans and royal watchers how does true royalties viewer behavior do you think differ from that of a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or or a broader SVOD service or, or do you think they might be broadly the same?
3: Oh, there's definitely similarities, but we we focus on really the differences and where where people start. And people don't start by sitting down saying, I'm going to turn on the Royalty Channel because there's never been one. So we, you know, we went fishing really where the Royal fans were. You you can think of the various publications or the the social communities that have already preformed. There's massive, massive um, interest. I mean, many, many. Uh, publisher organizations and, and other businesses have, you know, basically thrived on the back of all the great royal storylines for decades. So this just really was the right thing to do in this era to say, to, to look at, to look at that fan base, um, through the global lens, which you can now do and the video lens. And how would you, you know, how would you provide a business for that? How would you monetize that? How would you serve that new unserved need? and and that's what we went about doing. Um, one of the things that fascinated me was uh, as we as we wrote up the business plan was the size of the brand um, which really, you know, represents not just its its sort of financial value but obviously how many people actively consume it and interact with it, the dimensions to it. And that's been just the British royals alone. At the time it was ranked the fourth biggest brand in the world after Amazon Google and Apple ahead of brands like Coca-Cola, Walmart, uh, all the car brands, uh, Samsung. Uh, had a quite an amusing meeting in the Samsung offices, saying, "You guys aren't bad. You have a pretty big brand, but the, the, the British <laughs> Royals are, are bigger." Um, yeah. So it's you know it wasn't like a this really marginal niche. Um, it was a it was a very active fan base actively consuming this content and there was obviously a new generation of royals and then we've also taken you know taken it through the international and historical lens as well so we don't Mm -hmm. just talk about William and Kate we talk about Henry VIII we talk about uh, you know the Romanovs uh, Thai royals and so on and so forth and and uh, it's
1: sort of endless
3: as you as you go around the world and back through time
1: for our international listeners cuz we, we have lots of listeners from right around the world the gateway content if you like is presumably the british royal family but actually you you have content that that focuses on royal families around the world or is it or is it mainly brit focused
3: no we do we have you know japanese emperors maharajas we have uh uh, Nordic, Spanish royals, and and we're adding. Uh, we're very actively now adding to that um, that part of the library. Um, but it will be as we go beyond the current countries we're we're active in, which are Canada, Australia, the UK, the US, New Zealand, and Ireland. Very anglophile. As we go into other countries, we won't just expand um, sort of from volume. We'll expand monarchies and uh, and add dimensions to the content.
1: Now, as you touched on just there, one of the benefits of running an SVOD focused on royalty is that there's no shortage of real-world royal news. And obviously, the crown probably doesn't harm things either. How has Megxit and the Duke of Edinburgh's passing recently, How's that affected subscriptions and viewing and traffic and overall interest in true royalty?
3: On the, I think on-demand is a great... Word for the era you're in, because it's really whether or not you're in demand uh, as you know you're not getting present, we're not getting presented by any broadcasters uh, in a schedule. Um, it, it has to be when there's demand for what we're doing or what we are or who we're talking about. And you know, taking Philip, Prince Philip's passing, or as you say, uh, all the noise around the Oprah interview and 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 ever since then, uh, there's just an incredible demand for that kind of content. And so we've tried to align our, you know, our marketing push towards that demand, and we're operating much more in bursts. And and uh, I operate and you know, we operate the business, obviously, on the cost of ac- acquiring each and every subscriber. And that went down two to threefold. Through the period of March and April, we were bringing in uh, you know, two to three times the volume of subscribers, they were uh, costing us half to a third of what they would typically cost. So, we, wow. and, and we didn't have to do fancy, complicated marketing. We would just put out trailers to some of the Prince Philip documentaries or some of the stuff around the backstory to Harry. And and it's incredible um, how people just, it was it was just exactly what they were looking for. That was the mood they were in. And we don't necessarily do that in a tv environment we do that in a in a social media environment we you know which is a natural place or a news environment uh, on on the web with publishers or otherwise
1: well I guess from your perspective you know keep your fingers crossed for more and more royal news like more and more uh, Oprah interviews or, uh, or or similar pieces of activity.
3: Well they, they never let you down as, as my partner says it's it's the gift that keeps on giving in many ways there's just so many fascinating characters with so many fascinating stories and you know soon there'll be a whole new generation and you look at George and Charlotte they're going to be pretty interesting characters themselves so there's a lot of runway.
1: And speaking of royal news now last week saw the publication of a damning report into the BBC's world-shaking Martin Bashir Princess Diana interview for Panorama and it found the interview was obtained by a, a, a campaign of fraud and deception and the royal family itself has been swift and usually so unusually vocal in its response with the Duke of Cambridge, blaming the BBC's failings for fueling his mother's paranoia, worsening his parents' relationship. And it said that that interview should never again be broadcast. What what are your thoughts on the Bashir interview? And do you think it should ever be aired again?
3: Well, I think it's a horrible situation. And anytime something is done in a you know, a morally questionable way or or lacking basic human or business ethics, it's not really acceptable. You know it's ultimately it's for profit or fame on the back of doing something crooked. So that's sort of where I stand on that one. It's not okay. um now to to think about the product of that and and showing it to the world again, it, a, it's already out there in in many places where you could probably see. Some of it, or or all of it, even, uh, but be to actively be broadcasting that as an event um, to show that interview with that purpose. I think is probably wrong. I think to to have it more as part of a case study of of how not to behave um, and to abuse of of uh, people and in, in the media would be interesting. You know, outtakes of it to pro- provide it as content, use it as a case study as uh, as one of my colleagues uh, had suggested in a conversation I was having with him I think that would make sense but to make an event of it again I think is is probably
1: not very correct yeah and that's what tim davie the director general of the bbc was saying this morning is that you know they don't intend to broadcast it again in its in its entirety but you know clips of that interview are important I think for context even in the context of Showing that it was obtained by fraud and deception, um, it's important to to keep that as as library. I think, but it's a it's a fascinating and you know fairly damning uh, indictment of that interview, and and obviously it caused a huge amount of damage, and I'm sure a lot of that is is reflected on uh, on True Royalty when it comes to programming. Coming on to the news last week of this Warner Media spinoff, and. The merger with Discovery to create this new content powerhouse. As an S4 yourself, how are you looking at this? Do you think that it's going to affect you in any way? And how do you think it's going to affect the wider streaming wars?
3: I think it's very exciting and sort of right on schedule, as you said at the top of the call. We, you know, a couple of years ago, we were thinking, "Oh my goodness, all, it all looks like they're going to try and." make the shift to streaming and, and do that migration without their businesses collapsing. Then, of course, COVID hits and they entered the market and things got accelerated. The behavior, uh, you know, the curiosity to try the various new streaming channels was there. The time was there to do it at home. So everything accelerated. And of course, what was predicted in the following year is exactly what's begun now, the consolidation. And there there will be more of it. I think the, you know, the tech, the big tech giants are going to be right in the middle of it. I read that um, Malone was predicting that Discovery and Warner could be third or even second uh, in the mix with Netflix and Disney, but I wouldn't look too far past uh, Apple, Google, and Amazon. I have a funny feeling they're going to be in a mix, and they'd be probably, as, as we read, you know, there might be an announcement as soon as today. Uh, about Amazon's plan, so uh, I think it's I think it's exciting. I think it's accelerated uh, the behavior of of understanding actually uh, everything that's out there and how it can be consumed now. I think people jumping around their smart TVs from um, you know from setting to setting and firing up apps and navigating Amazon channels or otherwise is now becoming second nature to very quickly to to a much broader demographic. So all of that stuff's great for us because it's just the, it's the shift to streaming, it's the shift to having your personalized on-demand choice of content that's happening which plays into what we're providing to the people that are interested in what we have. Alongside of that, we'd have to go very fast to obviously work on the content, but but to get the distribution um, in place, which uh, has been the big part of what my focus is. And, you know, I I suspect that in 18 months after the sort of the nuclear war has played out a little more and there's been a little more consolidation, we'll be in a place where we become quite interesting to be partnered with or even invested in or, or acquired. By whatever we'll be calling these companies by then, whether they're Netflix, Amazon, whatever Discovery Warner becomes, if Apple Flix
1: maybe Apple Apple
3: Flix or Comcast, AMC, Viacom, <laughs> or yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't, as I say, I wouldn't count out Apple or Google too quickly.
1: And so, from your perspective, it's kind of a rising tide lifts all boats, right? I mean, it's 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 all about getting people into the habit of accessing content via subscription services via different devices and apps and just getting them used to to watching non-linear tv
3: that's right it's it's just been an accelerator and it's one of the premises of the business but it's been an accelerator and everyone at the same time figuring out how to get disney plus sort of taught them how to do it so then if they did decide it, they wanted something called true royalty they they know how that works
1: there's Lots of great ideas out there. There's lots of niches. There's lots of, you know, passionate fans of certain things, you know, whether it's music or whether it's uh, whatever type of pursuit. Uh, and and lots, of, lots of execs must be thinking about launching an Espod, But what are the key lessons that you've learned since launching True Royalty? And what would be your advice to those thinking of starting their own Espod in a particular area? It's quite normal to come
3: from a place where it's it's production and and the co- the contents come from a production world where they've produced amazing stuff of all sorts of flavors and types and genres. but there's they don't necessarily aggregate up into a clear proposition. Right? and And ultimately, when there's going to be a whole bunch of a la carte channels, which streaming channels are, uh, like ours anyway, is you have to have a brand in front of it. And the brand has to simplify the selection process, the buying process, the decision process. Say, what do I want to watch now? Oh, I love the Royals. You can go find Royal content in quite a few places uh, with Viacom, with Discovery, with Netflix, with Amazon. But if you're genuinely a fan for that, like I am for tennis, and if I feel like watching a tennis match that's happening in Shanghai, I like to have tennis TV available to me when I want it on demand and it's exactly the same kind of relationship. So I think you've got to have a crisp, crisp proposition, which becomes your brand and that needs to be aligned to a sizable, addressable and serviceable market. Um, So there's, there's a bit of a marketing piece in there, which has been missed along the way. There've been great tech people that have come together with great content people, but they've had the luxury in the past of having a broadcaster who brought them, Uh, you know, basically, they're marketing machines, they bring you distribution, they bring you an audience, they, you know, they bring you ad dollars, they fund the thing. And all of that is removed from the equation. Um, And you say, it's fine, they'll just subscribe and pay. Well, you've got to find them, you've got to get them over the line, you've got to find them in, in volume. It's a it's a huge marketing piece. And that's where I think my meeting, Nick has been great. Because he's been very much about the content. He's been reliant upon broadcasters and some of the new streamers in the past. But now he's able to go find customers because I come from more of a marketing world and, and, and we're a good we're a good match.
1: Presumably, discoverability, as you mentioned, is really, really important if it when it comes to SEO, when it comes to marketing in app as well. All of that are the skills that are really important for a new SVOD to have.
3: You've got to earn your way. Um, You have to pay a little bit up front to get yourself established, but then it's really about generating the content and, as you say, having your SEO and everything humming away so that you have some organic strength um, among all the other content options that are there.
1: One more question before we move on to Jen. I I was just wondering, how much content do you think you need? Is there a magic number of hours that you might need before – launching a service let's assume that it has a passionate fan base now i I think you've been very smart obviously in going towards royal programming because as you say you know it's 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 universal and it has an extremely strong brand what would you say is the minimum amount of hours that you need to be able to create a strong consumer content proposition
3: Great question. One we thought a lot about. We had some help along the way as we started to interact with some of the distributors that were to carry us because they had some conditions. Um, but we we said to ourselves, if we have 150 hours, 150 titles at launch of the pilot, it's enough to show the breadth and depth and give people sort of an idea of what our intention is as a channel, and um, and we said. We're really, we're really trying to be a secondary service, you know, to general interest, a guilty pleasure. Maybe when my husband is watching the NFL in Texas one afternoon, I might pick up my iPad and watch a documentary about Diana. <laughs> and we said, wouldn't that be mm-hmm. cool if a bit like National Geographic, you know, once or twice a month, you picked up uh, that month's edition for an hour or two or three and, and had a bit of an escape, if it had that kind of a relationship, well... That, that's worked, but we had the problem that in the, first, uh, in the first holiday season, it was the Christmas of 2019, some of these very households in Texas were watching seven hours a week, and we'd sort of planned for three <laughs> hours a month. And we said, oh, my God, we have...
1: <laughs> burning through all your cash. Yeah, we have yeah. super
3: fans, right? So we went from 150 to 250, and recently over 400. We went from refreshing five hours a month to now we're refreshing 20 hours a month. Uh, with uh, a greater proportion that's exclusive, so those are those are all the the dials we're turning up. Volume. We're we're not trying to stockpile content, but you need to have volumes of content because we have some long term subscribers that that uh, aren't showing any signs of wanting to churn. Um, you have to increase the the exclusivity so that people want to keep coming back and have specific reasons to, and then you need to you need to refresh monthly. So it's just a constant. Sort of buzz uh, even when there's not these big external events.
1: And you're obviously creating your own original content, but are you accepting pitches from third party producers for uh, for content, or are you sourcing most of your other content through finished programming through distribution deals?
3: No, we're uh, a bit of everything. so we're we're buying more exclusive rights. We're producing more ourselves. We're commissioning more. We're we're taking pitches. Uh, As I say, we're broadening the net in terms of monarchies and dimensionalizing. We've even got some drama coming in uh, related to you know some some older drama related to true royal stories, etc. So it's uh yeah we're 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 dimensionalizing the content and and up for any great content coming our way.
1: Jen, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome to Telecast. Now. You're executive director of Banff World Media Festival. Now, oh, yeah. as I was saying, just before we we came and started recording, I've seen the publicity shots of the venue, of the surrounding. It looks amazing, but I've never made it to Banff. I've, I've often thought of tagging onto a trip. If I've been to Real Screen West, for example, I've always thought, oh, you know, Banff is usually after that the week or so after but before we go into the detail of the event itself tell me what what have I been missing
2: well yeah you know what Banff is probably the most beautiful place on the planet and uh, what we like to say at the festival is that we need to in terms of the programming in terms of the people that come there in terms of the experience that our delegates have we have to live up to that view (laughs) And, uh, you know, I, it, which is second to none. And, and I like to think that the festival is second to none. It's been, this is the 42nd year of the Banff World Media Festival. And it, it has always been a place and continues to be a place where key figures in the, in the media industry come together with the wider industry. You know, you build relationships, you discuss pressing issues, do business, and, and also, of course, celebrate the best programming in the world. And that's, that's part of our Rocky Awards. Um, I think you've been missing, uh, you know, the legacy, perhaps, um, you know, in the early days, everyone from, you know, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Gregory Peck, Bob Newhart, Kate 80, Walter Cronkite, Sir David Attenborough, you know, all the studio heads, um, and then today, some of the most prominent executives and creators gather uh in banff whether it be in the mountains in the rocky mountains of canada or uh, virtually these last couple of years so this year we have you know speaking at the festival ted serendos tim davy eva duvernay maverick carter kevin feige simi Lu, um really just and that's that's just a taste I, I it really is a coming together of the you know the some of the biggest names in the industry but also some of the the most exciting up-and-coming creators, directors, showrunners, writers, uh, all coming together. And, and it's a place where conversations happen and, and where relationships are built.
1: You know, it sounds like the Davos of TV. Um, <laughs> I mean, t- tell us a little bit about the heritage, if you like. So how did it start? And how did the festival grow? Was it was it purely TV? Or is it film as well? Or is it is it purely on TV? And if so, what kind of genres of tv does it focus on
2: well yeah it is i mean and when we say tv uh i that pretty much means anything on any screen anywhere anytime these days um and yeah. and i will certainly say yeah, yes it was initially called uh in 1979 launches the banff television festival renamed to the banff world media festival um you know over a decade ago i think uh just to encompass everything that is on screens, uh, and and now e- even more so, you know the festival is certainly very squarely centered in what we traditionally would call television series, but also features, one-offs. Um, and, you know, more and more conversations around the festival, especially this year, are, are being centered around around film, around feature films, or around with all the windows collapsing and, and the way that the industry is going and, you know, how the streamers have impacted the industry. It's a screen is a screen and eyeballs are eyeballs. So I would say that Banff um, definitely encompasses... Everything on every screen. Um, we even sometimes get into gaming and uh, and uh, the discussion around advertising and, and marketing in in the industry too. Um, but I, I think at, at its very core, uh, it is about that the the creation of new content um, that is that is something that really differentiates banff from almost anywhere else you know there are other markets and conferences in the world that um, are uh, often focused uh, on finished programming where there's a large contingent uh, of finished programming sales that happen and while that does happen at the festival absolutely our, our unique uh, position in the industry is that it is an ignition point for new partnerships and and new content that comes together with that that melding of both the creative and the business sides of the industry
1: right so it's the place to pitch
2: it is the place to pitch absolutely for sure
1: well we'll we'll talk about that again in a in a second but obviously banff in a beautiful beautiful environment unfortunately we're living in still living in covid times you know some of us are be sort of exiting you know lockdowns faster than others and obviously canada's had uh, had issues with with covid just like everywhere else on the on the planet you presumably ran last year's event as a digital only and that's the same this year right
2: that's correct. Um, we found out, uh, you know, really weeks before the festival last year that, that it was going to be something that, that we were going to have to cancel like so many other events around the world. And, and we did and we pivoted. And, and I'm really super proud of, of what we created last year, which was an outstanding program of, of both meetings and, um, you know, speakers, master classes, panels, et cetera. I'd say if, if last year was uh, about, uh, building the plane while we were flying it, this whole past year has been about building a better plane. <laughs> right. So it is. It is the second year of of the virtual festival um, this year, and uh, I'd say that that tenet holds true. You know, we we still in this uh, in this environment want to want to hold up to what Banff is and what it's meant to be, and and to that the the standards of of that incredible place and view. Mm. And so I think we've built a program that exemplifies that
1: it's the place to pitch and we've found that as everybody you know can't meet up in person then actually virtual pitching has been successful to a certain extent I think people have just made it work through necessity and actually you know some people that we've had on the show over the past few months have found that they were able to access execs that they'd never usually you know, be, be able to access and pitch to. So there have been some benefits in in, in some places. What have you learned then from year one in, in terms of a digital event, uh, digital Banff? What have you learned that you're going to be implementing this year to to improve the experience for, for delegates?
2: I think what we learned is that we have to stick to the heart and soul of what we do, um, you know, we we know our value proposition, and which for BAMF is is bringing people together, for inspiration, for creativity, and, and for business to meet. And so, with every single decision that we've made in creating, you know, this virtual conference platform, which which we have put incredible resources into over the last year, and and I think it really is unique to anything out there, in in the world, frankly. Um, but it's all been centered around what um, we all need, which is is networking new relationships, facilitating meetings. and uh, it's interesting i was I was listening to this podcast um, you know, a, a couple of uh, w- an episode a couple of weeks ago talking about you know what we're all missing. We're all missing those sort of happenstance meetings when you're walking down the croisette or at the at the bar at a conference. And and I think one of the things that we've created is this, this amazing virtual delegate lounge that is sort of drop-in, but also we're programming meetups and events around, you know, scripted or come meet the Rockies nominees, or I'm a producer looking for a distributor, or I'm a writer looking for a producer. Those kinds of things that aren't just you know, we have thousands of preset meetings that you can sign up for to meet with buyers and pitch and do all of those things. But also this whole platform where you can request video meetings with each other. And then this delegate lounge that that does really aim to replicate that experience of, you know, just happenstance meetings that can lead to an amazing conversation and, and a new relationship and, and new projects being born.
1: So in, in practical terms, if I'm on your platform and I can see... And I'm, I'm a producer, let's say, and I can see a commissioner is actually in the lounge at the same time. I can potentially, you know, virtually go up and and grab them. How do I recreate that happenstance situation that you just mentioned?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, so that, that delegate lounge is just, just one aspect of, of what we're doing at the festival, but you can, you, you, come into the lounge, there are tables with chairs, you can pull out a chair, you can see everybody that's in there. You can, uh, if I see uh, your little uh, icon in in where you can look at who, who's in the room, virtually in the room, I can just message you and say, hey, Justin, um been dying to talk to you, why don't you come meet me at table four, and we can go and have a seat at table four, where we each pull a chair, and we have a chat. Um, it's really that simple. Uh, you know, and and we've also replicated something really interesting, you know, when when we have those really big um, keynotes and panels, and this year, we've got some amazing ones with with Ted Sarandos and Maverick Carter and Kevin Feige and Channing Dungey and just uh, Tim Davey, uh, you know, really incredible speakers. And when we have those, and you, you take in that kind of content, that kind of thought leadership, those discussions, and then the content's done, oftentimes in a virtual environment, it, you sort of shut down your, that tab on your browser and you sit there and think about it. But what we're doing is uh, immediately after those big sessions, we automatically, without having to do a thing, you're directed into the delegate lounge and you can be there and take a seat and sort of replicate that feeling of walking out for us. It's the Cascade Ballroom, which is our main stage at, at, at Banff. You can replicate that feeling of, of talking to somebody. Well, what did you think about that? I, you know, I don't agree with that. I do agree with that. I'm going to go talk to them. So we're doing everything we can to try and, and give people that that thing that we've been all missing.
1: Tell us about the makeup of the delegates by country, if you can, just, just a broad brush stroke. Presumably, it's mainly North American delegates that you get. Can you give us an idea of how many like Europeans or how many uh, Asian delegates you may get?
2: Yeah, so it is. it is called the Banff World Media Festival. Uh, You know, we have typically in the in-person festival, and that's actually replicated uh, in the virtual, we have, you know, 20 to 25 countries that are represented amongst our delegates. So it truly is international. The Rocky Awards, uh, you know, we have uh, 37 countries that are participating in the Rocky Awards. Uh, That said, the mix of delegates, um, I would say, is uh, probably a little more North American. Uh, you know, but we do have great uh, representation this year. We have some delegations uh, from Ireland and from Israel in in sort of on mass, in, in particular. Uh, but we have you know people there, truly from from across Europe, across Asia, that are at the festival, all there with you know looking for co-productions. And I think uh, a sort of a, a thing about Banff is that we do attract a lot of um, American uh, buyers, a lot of development executives from the streamers, from the US networks and studios are there. And that's no different this year. And I think that that the European producers in particular um, are sort of realizing that this is a really great entree into that market.
1: You're saying I can pitch to Netflix at Banff,
2: well, you and everyone else who wants to pitch to Netflix. If you, I mean, it's, it's no different than, than any other, other you know, festival. We're not yeah. going to guarantee anyone, any meeting uh, with any any executive. Uh, how Well, we I shouldn't say that. We do. We have, you know, over 1,400 guaranteed preset meeting slots that you sign up for, and, and it's sort of a lottery system, and you, you get those. But that said, on the whole platform, it's kind of like a, a LinkedIn-style platform where everyone has a profile, and you can certainly reach out to them, very easily and and try and set a meeting you have to it's it's you have to be you know sort of worth uh your salt in terms of what you're bringing to the table to secure a meeting with netflix or anybody else uh and that's no different
1: and and tell us when when the event is because uh we, we we haven't spoken about dates and and how do people access banff
2: Well, uh, the festival is taking place over uh, the course of a month this year from June 14th to July 16th and uh people can get uh passes to the festival we have two types of passes this year we have a content pass where you can take in all of those amazing panels and master classes and showrunner super panels and and everything else um and a marketplace pass that really gives you the access to book those meetings do those pitches get into the delegate lounge uh and that can all be accessed on the on the Banff website which is Banffmediafestival.com.
1: right okay and we'll put a link to both True Royalty and also Banff World Media Festival in the episode description, so anybody that's listening can go and click and have a look around and and check them both out. And Jen, just one final question about markets and conferences post COVID, because you know we're hoping now around the world that you know the second half of twenty twenty one we're going to start to see these events opening up a little bit. We're looking at NEM, MIPCOM, various other events are advertising real world and hybrid events, but certainly the opportunity to certain delegates to, to meet in person. In the future, it's probably too early to say, but do you see that the digital element of Banff will always be there now? Now you've built the plane, if you like. Will you always be offering online access to delegates as well as that real world event?
2: You know what? You're right. We can't tell exactly what the future is going to be at, at this point. But I think that what we have built in the virtual platform is meaningful. I think it's efficient. I think that um, it will survive. And I know it will. I know it's it's within our plans Although we do wholeheartedly plan to go back to an in-person event in in the Rocky Mountains. Um, And, you know, I can't really speak to the future of of other events and what they're planning. and, And some might not survive. People are going to be more choosy about where they travel because they've discovered that some things that they used to fly to can be done without getting on a plane. But events that are truly a unique experience that really further business in an impactful and valuable way something that you can't get anywhere else, those events will survive and they'll thrive. And, and I think Banff is one of those things. And I think the in-person and the digital will, will both be part of what the festival does going forward.
1: And now it's time for Gregor and Jen to pick their stories of the week, the TV industry news items that have caught their eye in the past seven days. Gregor, what's your story of the week?
3: My story is Amazon and MGM on the back of what's going on with discovery and uh, and warner um, it's it's really going to heat up and i suspect that that's not going to be the last of it it's uh, what i read last night which is the story i'm referring to is that it could be uh, announced as soon as today so i'm uh, pretty excited to see the choice of you know putting 9 million into mgm rather than just into their own studio uh, if you think about that as i did it's i guess it's you know they're putting a lot of premium on brands like bond Rocky, Fargo, um, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and you name it. So uh, it's going to change. Uh, if, if it goes ahead, it'll really change, I think, the, the stature of Amazon as a studio, obviously, and, and some pretty sexy uh, entertainment brands.
1: But looking at uh, the Amazon catalog, there's some great, great content on there, and obviously lots of Oscar-winning content on there. But equally, it is a bit patchy. But uh if you add in Bond, as you say, and all of those amazing, you know, household name franchises, it does really elevate the business to to something different. And and I guess, you know, Amazon's not short of a few quid. And if they want to get ambitious, then they can completely change the game. So that is gonna be fascinating to watch. And uh we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So uh you never know by, by the time this comes out on Thursday, we may, uh, we may see some, uh, some other news that, but we'll, again, we'll, we'll focus that on our telecast newsletter on Friday. So everybody can see that. And I'm sure that everybody have read the news anyway, Jen, how about you? What's your story of the week?
2: Well, that that probably is the story of the week. However, uh, you know something else uh, happened last week, which was the U.S. upfronts, and you know so I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on on that story and some of the news that's been coming out of of the upfronts, specifically um, you know the the openness of U.S. networks to be working with more third party suppliers, co producing with outside studios. I think that bodes well for the industry generally. I think whenever you diversify where content comes from. It just results in strength and, and better content. Studio heads were talking a lot last week at the upfronts about a, a commitment to diversity and inclusion, you know, attracting and cultivating and retaining authentic, underrepresented voices and, and this is a movement, not a moment. And it's not lost on me that this is the, the one year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd and this is something that, that the industry as a whole has, has committed to and, and I hope it's I hope it's true and I and I wanna believe this is going to be an ongoing endeavor for the entire industry, uh, you know, and and I just think that, that events like Banff are what we do. Um, you know, we have programs, our Diversity Voices program with Netflix and and our Banff Spark program. This year, we're going to have 300 Black, Indigenous and people of color creators, producers at the festival, not newbies, accomplished, vetted, talented producers and creators. And, and if Um, the studio heads and if the the leaders of the industry are 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 true and and you know endeavoring to truly make change I think you know being part of that and and finding those new creators is going to be the key to it all I I really truly believe that the next Phoebe Waller-Bridge or next Michaela Cole is at Banff and is at other festivals and I think it it takes effort and intention um, and I'd like to see that it actually happens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll again post the links to both those stories on the episode description so you can go and check those out. If you haven't heard the news already, we'll see. We'll see if something breaks between, uh, between now and Thursday. And now it's time in the show where my guests get to nominate their Hero of the Week and who or what they're telling to get in the bin. Jen, who's your Hero of the Week?
2: My Hero of the Week is uh, Michaela Cole. Uh, the BAFTA Craft Awards were were just handed out, and, and she obviously won for directing and writing. I May Destroy You is an incredible feat. She's done so much for women, so much for black women in the industry. And so, yeah, Michaela Cole is the Hero of the Week for me, possibly year, decade.
1: Gregor, how about you? Who's your Hero of the Week? Well, just to stay
3: on the same theme uh, that I've been on, I think to enable all this this action happen it's uh you could say it's uh, david zaslav or john stanky but i think it's actually john malone who's given way uh to moving to one class of shares so that the merger could happen and this massive consolidation could begin so uh, he's my nominee
1: and who or what are you telling to get in the bin gregor
3: in the bin i think it's lukashenko mm. and and belarus and probably their their friends uh <laughs> that aren't too far away who who look like yeah. they're trying to do anything they possibly can to control the media and the narrative which is
1: just uh, mind-boggling it is it is is a little bit worrying so uh we're hoping for a, a robust response i think to that because you can just feel a little bit of creep coming in from the east in in these cer- certain areas which is a which is a little bit concerning and and certainly when it comes to free speech and uh, democracy and and journalism is very important at this time you know to to really underline you know that freedom of speech aspect
3: even 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 their nearby neighbors uh throttling google because they don't like the narrative it's just again it's mind-boggling it, uh, you can yeah do that.
1: yeah yeah absolutely okay in the bin uh jen who or what are you telling to get in the bin
2: well, there are some some similar themes and and I'm going to tread into Gregor's territory just to touch here. Um, but I think in the bin is is Martin Bashir, the bombshell surrounding the falsifying of the documents to secure that infamous interview with with Diana. You know, obviously the BBC has taken responsibility offered unconditional apology, but when things like this happen and are revealed, it 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 can erode everyone's trust. In, in venerable news organizations and god knows we need to be able to trust in the integrity of organizations um you know like the bbc and others you know and when you talk about journalism and, and integrity i think that that whole thing needs to go in the bin uh, once it's properly dealt with of course
1: absolutely and you you just know some of these uh regimes are just going to hold up the this as a as a flag aren't they you know it's uh when it comes to the BBC's, you know, uh, uh, reputation. It's just, you know, it's just a, such a shame for so many reasons. Okay. Bashir in the bin, Jen, Gregor, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. It's fascinating to hear about Banff World Media Festival and all the best with True Royalty TV. Great to speak to you and the best of luck with everything that you're doing.
2: It's been lovely. Thanks so much. Thank
3: you, Justin. Great to meet you, Jen. Uh, Good luck with everything.
2: Likewise. Take care.
1: And it's time to welcome my final guest of the week, Tracy Forsyth. Great to have you back on the show, Tracy. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you. Wonderful to be here.
1: Everybody's starting to return to work, you know, uh, slowly but surely. Lots of people, we're hearing that people are returning back to their offices across the TV industry some are, some aren't, obviously, but uh, everybody's different, and ev- everybody's uh, seems to be returning at different stages. Is that what you're feeling, Tracy? Is you you, are you hearing that from people?
0: Definitely, I've had so many different conversations with people, and everybody is feeling very differently. Um, you know some people are anxious about actually physically um, going into the office and others uh, have been expressing anxiety about what to say to each other like either they're going to get they fully they're feeling tongue-tied through lack of socializing in person um, from the last year or they're feeling oh well actually I've had a really good year but I feel awkward about actually admitting that and saying that to people um, in case they've had a terrible year so there's a lot of sort of treading on eggshells when it comes to relating to other people and also a lot of sort of physical uncertainty about you know the environment you know just being in different environments and you know some people I know have have found it exhausting going out of the house and and mixing and mingling with other people coming home flopping out because they're not used to that level of engagement. So I think it's just really important to remember that it took us sort of well over a year to to get into things and to adjust. So to to not expect an inst- instant transformation the other when we come out of it. And this past month or past six weeks I have been planting loads of Actual real life seeds in a little temporary, um, you know, one of those pop up greenhouses. Well, it's too big a word, so greenhouse. One of those little shell things with plastic over it in my in my backyard uh, because we have an allotment. we you know we went on the council waiting this five years and finally got an allotment. And so each year I plant loads of seeds and in the hope that they will grow. And then when they're big enough, put them out into the allotment and what I, I was doing this the other day and i i i always have i have all these hundreds of little pots and i plant lots of things and i always think i'm going to remember what i planted where um and then don't so it's always a bit of a surprise to me what actually comes up and so um this time i was just seeing the first few of the uh beans come up and those little guys come up like in a little, they they curl up a stalk and then two leaves unfurl. And even though um, I'd pretty much planted the same kind of beans or the same beans from the same packet into the same trough, they were all coming up slightly differently. And I thought, God, isn't that interesting? Is that um, even though they were planted on the same day, they've been put under the same conditions, they've been watered the same amount, they had the same soil, they all come up differently. And it just made me think how much like those little seeds we are with regards our return to the to the new, new normal and the return to the working environment outside of our home is that some of us are shooting straight up, spreading those, those leaves and um, growing like the clappers and others are, you know, um, curling very, very slowly out of the soil. And some are still refusing to come up. You know, I just took great inspiration from that to say, you know what, it's all absolutely fine. You know, we we are all very different. We all have a different approach. We all have a different um feeling inside us about how to return to the new new normal and we are all going at our own pace. And if we are not feeling like cartwheeling down Old Compton Street, um, but rather sort of actually keeping the onus on working from home, if possible, or avoiding the office, then that is absolutely fine. I think the, the thing is is that we like those little seeds. Once they all come out in their own time and get planted, they are all likely to grow into, hopefully, big, strong Bean stalks and produce the same type of beans. So they will all get there in their own time and reach the same destination. And 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 likewise, whatever that destination for us is, whether it's just and I think it should be sort of ensuring our own well being and 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 peace of mind and our own physical and mental health should be the end, we will get there in our own time and don't either feel pressured to be like somebody else and to, to feel that you should be, you know, shooting out of your little pot. Um, uh, and, and, and the other way around is that don't feel that just because you are, uh, shooting out of your little pot, that, that there's anything wrong with the people who don't want to go as fast as you do. Um, so I think my, my big message is, is that, you know, we are living organic beings in the same way that those little seedlings are, we all grow differently. And it's 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 both to sort of respect yourself, respect your own desires and wants and and needs, and also just to respect the, the desires and needs of other people.
1: It's a really good analogy, Tracy, because, uh, I mean, I, at the weekend I went to the football match for the first time in, I think it's about 14, 15 months. And I have to say that I was a little bit uh, anxious when... I was going through into the gates and going in there, and there was, the, it was still only letting a few thousand people in. But a few thousand people after this amount of time is quite strange to be in that environment and uh, you're still very very mindful of your own space and uh, people will no doubt feel that in different ways when it comes to you know public transport in london we have the tube obviously and lots of different uh, cities around the world have public transportation systems and a lot of people might not quite fancy getting on those right right at the moment
0: No. Yeah. And it was exactly it. I mean, I think if you think um, maybe how strange it was to go into lockdown at the beginning and look out of your front, you know, look out of your window, your front door and think, oh, there's no there's no movement out there, you know, in the same way that suddenly going into a large crowd or a place, a busy place will will seem alien at first. And so it's like not to put pressure on yourself. You know, you just got to adjust. It's like when you come out of the darkness and you have to blink your eyes uh, a, a few times before it get used, gets used to the light. So go easy, unfurl your leaves at your own pace and and try not to be judgmental of others if they're not going at your own pace. So that's my message for today. So really, you know, just, just get in touch with yourself, you know, just do that. I don't know whether you remember my pause process proceed um, method but it's just really to pause for a moment you know almost like pat your hand on your chest and just work out what is going on inside you what is process your thoughts what is it that you are really feeling what is it that you're wanting what is it that you're needing and only then um, once you've really thought about those things then only then move to the proceeding part
1: That's great. Tracy, from Fast Track to Fearless, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Really good advice. And take it at your own pace. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues. And a quick reminder to sign up for our free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week that you might have missed, downloadable reports and surveys, and exclusive insight and opinion, including The Secret Producer, our intrepid, anonymous, real-world exec, reporting from the front line of TV production. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter – Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. So, until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.